go up closer to the front, unless you can't hear me. Um, the reason that this little booklet was given out is several, but one of them is that it is an excellent booklet. I have met and talked with the man who wrote it. He is a medical doctor um, and holds a specialist certificate in psychiatry. Not that we want to hold that against him, but he does. And he is a very brilliant man, and this book is one of the best available, in my view, uh, extant on the subject of evolution. Also, it has in the back a very comprehensive bibliography of citations which he makes. And the books from which he cites, many of them are excellent, and a lot of them are available in the library. And I would strongly recommend that you avail yourself of the opportunity to uh, get them. Now, with respect to the theory of evolution, I think we can, we should set up on the screen here that there are extant at present two two theories that are used to explain the origin of living things as they appear on this planet. As far as I am aware, there are only two theories. And they are mutually exclusive. What's mutually exclusive mean? Somebody? It can't both be true. The first theory is what's known as the theory of special creation by God. And the second theory is the theory of evolution. Now we're going to discuss uh, the first day, that's tomorrow, we're going to have the whole period devoted to a discussion of the special creation by God theory as it is set down. And then the balance of the time we're going to discuss the theory of evolution. Now there's two ways you can sit in this class. I've got you captive here for an hour. You've got to stay here. You know, the rules of the school say you've got to be here or somewhere for this hour or you get thrown out. So whether you like it or not, you've got to be here. Now here's what I say. There's two ways to be here. One is to virtually fall asleep or daydream or look out the window and think about everything under the sun except what we're talking about. And the other way is to listen to what's being said and see if you can learn something. Now, one of the best ways to learn something is to have in front of you a notebook on which you write down information as it is given out. And this is the way that you can avail yourself of learning. Because you've got to be here anyway, and uh, I won't let you fall asleep, because I'll holler at you if I see you nodding. So, my recommendation is that everybody go down to the back table, if they haven't already done so, and get a notebook. Open it up, get an instrument with which to write and write down these things. And I suggest you start writing right now and write down that these two theories are the only two that people put forward to explain the origin of living things on this earth. Because otherwise, you're going to say, oh, yeah, but I, I thought there was a third theory. Somebody told me there was a theory, blah, blah, blah. Well, there isn't. There's only two. There's the origin of living things discussed, and they're either here by special creation or they're here by evolution. And there ain't no others. And they are mutually exclusive. In other words, any attempt to combine the two and say, well, I believe in both. I'm, I'm a guy who uh, has these things all worked out in my mind so that both are true. And I don't know what you're hungry about, because I can accept both. I know that you can't and you can't, but I can. I have all this thing meshed together so that I can believe in God and I can believe in the Bible and I can believe in the first chapter of Genesis and I can believe everything you believe and I do. And I also believe in the theory of evolution. Well, maybe you can get those all things under one hat, but I can't, and I don't think you can either, and I'm going to tell you why this week. All right, having said that, what is the theory of evolution? What is it? What does it say? We will be talking about the theory of special creation, too, but what does the theory of evolution say? What is it?
Now you students who get into grade 9, 10, 11, 12, up here 13, and get into college, you get this pounded in you from about grade 6. So everybody should know exactly what the theory of evolution is. If I answer what the theory of special creation was, I might not be so uh, expectant that you might know. But the theory of evolution, I expect you to know. Now what is it? Don't be shy, okay. You want a very short definition? Yep. Well, it's simply the same thing uh, came about through a process of natural change by very minute changes from, uh, from the elements that were always present in the universe. Right. That's as good a definition as any. The one I have is no better, but there it is. And it is this. And get this down, because this is what we're going to be talking about. Theory is that millions and millions, and some of them go as high as five billion years ago, through the operation of pure chance. Now this just happened. This is a very important factor in the theory of evolution, because since there is no God, we must have some uh, method of getting these things here. So pure chance is a method that is used. Through the, the operation of pure chance, life came to this planet. Now there's all kinds of theory, theories about what happened before that. The Big Bang Theory, the Molecular Theory, this theory and that theory about what happened, how the, the uh, whole thing was all one mass once and then there was a big explosion and the whole universe started to expand from there and finally the Earth cooled off and started spinning around and it was that way for countless eons of time and then finally through the operation of pure chance, life came to this planet. That's the big thing, the introduction of life because the gap between life and inanimate or no life matter is exceedingly vast. So the trick was to get life going on the earth. So the theory says that the operation of pure chance came along and that life came to this planet. And not only that, but that from this original living cell or living spark of life, all plant and animal life that has lived or that is now living on the face of the earth was descended. In other words, the earth cooled off. It was a molten mass of white hot uh, uh, rock and so forth. Finally, it cooled down and then the gases and so on started to escape and this, that, and the other thing happened. But finally, the big event that happened was that life came to this planet. And these fellows say that it's unlikely that life is on any other planet in the whole universe. Well, there are countless zillions of, of Earths and planets growing around in the, in the um, universe. They don't think that any of them are suitable for life except this one. So the big thing was that life came to this planet. There was a spark of life came. And from that original spark, all living things, plant and animal, have been descended, including you and me and all the green and everything else we see around us. Now there's the theory. Tomorrow we're going to discuss the theory of special creation, and then we're going to spend the balance of the time on evolution. But before we do, which theory does the Bible uphold of those two? First theory, theory of special creation. Uh, I haven't got a lot of speaker hooked up this morning, so if any of you find difficulty in hearing me, go like this, and I'll try and raise my voice a little bit. Now, if y'all got notebooks, because as I told you yesterday, uh, I want you to, without being, uh, I hope, conceited, I hope that you will learn something from this course. And uh, the only way to do it is to write down what you hear. Sitting there and daydreaming and thinking about the football game and the sports this afternoon and the pretty girl next to you and all that isn't going to get you anywhere, but I hope learning something about the Bible will. As we said yesterday, the Bible supports the theory of special creation by God. Now this isn't only supported in the first chapter of Genesis, it is also supported in the whole of the law, the Old Testament, 
the Psalms, the Prophets, and all the writers of the New Testament. There isn't any one of them come along and say that uh, there's some other theory that they want to promulgate. They all agree that God created man and the heavens and the earth. And it's only in comparatively recent times that people have started to question whether this was right or not. It's true the ancient Greeks did question it, but they didn't really get very far. But all of you might say the religious so-called Christian world, up until very recently, perhaps 150 years ago, believed that God was the author of the Bible, that it was his word, number one, number two, that he created man and the world. What was the, perhaps the greatest impetus to a questioning of this idea? And when did it happen? Anybody know that? There came along something that was almost like a bombshell among the religious world. And from then on, things have never been the same in this field. What was it? Yeah. Right. In the year 1859, that's a little over 100 years ago, 108 years ago, a man in England by the name of Charles Darwin published a book, title of it was, The Origin of Species, in which he put forth a theory that life came to the earth by spontaneous generation, and that all living things were formed from this original life, including man, by a system of gradual descent over a period of millions and millions and millions of years. And this theory that God wasn't active in the creation of man, and in fact man sprang from monkeys, and monkeys sprang from birds, and birds sprang from reptiles, and reptiles sprang from amphibia, and amphibia sprang from fish, and fish sprang from amoebas, and amoebas sprang from inanimate matter, right back to the beginning, was seized upon, not only by atheists, but even by religious people, as a great milestone in the liberation of man. I think we might have to understand why it was that this theory was so widely accepted and quickly gained strength, and now is in control of the minds of man. Why is it? What was there about this theory that was so attractive that everybody with one accord rushed down and worshipped this new god? What is there about it? Certainly isn't as logic as we're going to try and show this week, but there was something about it that was very attractive. McGregor? Appeal to the vanity of man. Yeah, it appealed to the vanity of man, number one. Yes? Also, man's Yeah, now this is the, the thing I want to emphasize. If you can come up with a theory which eliminates God, number one, and the Bible, number two, you have a position where man is a law unto himself, and therefore he is under no moral responsibility to a higher authority. He is liberated. So then he's able to do anything he likes with impunity. And this is very appealing. I don't know whether any of you have children or have younger brothers or sisters, but if you have, you will know that they want to do what they want to do. And their will is paramount in their own mind. And you see a position prevail right here, probably at the Bible school. Hope not, but you probably do, where you have a, a child of 15 months uh, in complete control of the family. Their will is, 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 uh, is, subject, is subjecting the whole of the rest of the family to their little will. And the parents are absolutely powerless to do anything about it. And this is tragic, but it happens. Well, on, the, on moving up, we have a position if the theory of evolution is true, and there is no God, and the Bible is, is not his word, that man now is, is free to anything he likes. His sexual freedom, his honesty freedom, his moral freedom, everything is free. It's a wide-open deal, and that's the position we now have prevailed in America. We have a position where man is released from any obligation to God or to any higher law. A lot of these days out of jail, uh, he's all right. He is free from any moral discipline. And he is, becomes, as you said, a law unto himself. And that's the position we find ourselves in. 
However, the Bible, on the other hand, is a book of moral restraint. It sets down certain specific commandments that you're not to do. Thou shalt, well, let's say, sexual freedom, which is now wide open in America. It says, thou shalt not commit adultery. It says, flee fornication. Puts a, a specific barrier upon sexual liberality. And this is what people don't want. So any theory that comes along which can release them from this without, without pricking their conscience is wonderful. And that's why evolution was seized with such great avidity and is, is taught and believed today, not because of its, of its scientific proof, far from it, but because of its appeal to man's nature. On the other hand, as we said, the Bible is a book which sets forth a theory of special creation. And this morning, we want to go into what the Bible really does say, because a lot of people think that the Bible is completely loggerheads with science. That these guys who sit in universities uh, and um, write books and write articles have got this thing all figured out, and they've long since proved that the Bible is uh, mythology, uh, analogy, uh, parable, and this and that, particularly the opening chapters. And uh, you get people say to you, well, you, please, you don't mean to say that you've been to college and uh, you still believe in the Bible. I mean, is, is there anybody left like that? You know, is this possible? Uh, a fellow can go to college today to an institution of higher learning and, and still believe in that stuff? I mean, is, is, is there such a, a guy around? Well, yeah, there is. Here's one right here. If you want to see one uh, in real life, uh, this is one. But there are many others, and we're going to talk more about that this week, too, of people who, who are in seats of higher learning and who still do believe in the Bible. So don't let anybody come along and tell you that, that all scientists have long since rejected the Bible. This is not true. It just ain't so. So let's get rid of that one. That anybody who's been to college, don't forget, a guy who's been to college is a guy like you and me, who for three or four years goes on to school. It doesn't elevate him to sainthood or to a position where he should be worshipped or that his words now are in hell. It's just a saint guy like you and me who goes on to school for three more years and gets a degree if he's lucky. That's all. He picks up a little bit of knowledge, but by no means does he now become infallible. All right, now, I want to now have you turn to the book of Genesis. And let's have a look at what it really does have to say. You know, the Bible's a funny book. I don't know of any other book that people pick up and usually you never read it. And they say aloud, or to whoever's listening, they say, uh, here is a book that I am now going to read in a cursory manner, and we will now show that everything it says means something different from what it says. You know of any other book like this? You know of any book, any scientific book, any novel, any newspaper article, any magazine article, where people pick it up and they say, uh, I'm now going to read from this book, but I am now also going to, before I even start, I'm going to say that whatever it says here, uh, it, I'm going to interpret entirely differently and, and probably exactly opposite from what it says. You think a, a guy was, was a little bit ready for a funny farm if, if he talked like that. But this is how people pick the Bible up. They've never read it. They don't know the first thing about it. But before they even start, they say, we will now show the Yeah, they say, well, now, obviously, uh, this is, you know, this is, and that, this is mythology. Uh, nobody believes that anymore. Whoever believes that God created the heaven and the earth. Hey, man, let's get realistic. I mean, science has long proved that this didn't happen. And as they read along, and don't think that this form of reasoning is confined to people in colleges, we have it infecting the brotherhood. I'm sorry to say it, but we have it infecting the brotherhood. We have, I know, brethren 
who privately will tell you that the first two or three chapters, in fact, the first 11 chapters, because it includes the flood, is a grand parable written for simple-minded people who didn't know much, who couldn't understand very much, and it was written down to show sort of the general idea of what God had in mind. But as far as, as being real, though, well, that you can forget. We have brethren like this. Never mind people out in the world. Well, I'm not one of those brothers. I'll tell you right now, I am what's known, as Time Magazine said, as a hyper-fundamentalist. And I've been to college, too, incidentally, if anybody wants to know. Uh, so the fact that I've been to college and still am a hyper-fundamentalist may seem strange, but it happens to be true. All right. Now, I want to, if I may, spend the next few minutes, uh, set down what really is said here in the opening verses of the book of Genesis. Because on this hangs maybe your salvation. If you are convinced that the opening chapters of Genesis are mythology, and only written for simple-minded folk, just as sort of a grand parable, something like the Babylonian uh, legends, then you're, you're getting off right away on the wrong foot. Because right in the opening chapters of Genesis, it tells that man fell. From, he didn't rise up from the age into something good. He was good and he fell down. And there's a scheme provided by God to get him back up again, which is exactly opposite from what the colleges teach. Because if you take a course in psychology or sociology or criminology or any of these other ologies like that, they will tell you that man essentially is good. And the only reason he's bad is because the government didn't provide proper housing for him. Or something like that. Don't laugh. This is what they teach. But the Bible says that man is essentially evil, and that his mind is carnal, and that he's an enemy with God. An entirely different concept. So the whole scheme of college courses in psychology and sociology is built on a wrong premise. And so their conclusions must be wrong, in my view. And I believe it is the view of the Bible as well. Alright, now, it says here, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Only once, when you write this down on your book, only once in the Bible is this phrase, in the beginning, used, and that is here. If you will look at Isaiah 11, you will see the same English words used. Isaiah, pardon me, Isaiah 1. Will you all look at Isaiah 1 and write this down too, because this is the sample of where the same English words are used. Isaiah 1 and 26. Barbara, have you got that? Uh, no. Who's got it? Nobody. Oh, okay, yeah. And I will restore thy judges as at the first, and thy comfort as at the beginning. Okay, stop there. Now those two words, as at the first, or could be as at the beginning. And again, thy counselors as at the beginning, are the same English words, but they are not the same Hebrew words. Only once in the whole Bible is this phrase, in the beginning, used as it is here. Now it says, God created. Now the word created there is also a word that isn't used with uh, too great frequency in the Bible, so we'll just put it down here. The word created. Now this is a funny Hebrew word too. And it has the idea almost as if you were carving a sculpture to carve out. Or to put finishing 
touches on to sort of this gives you the idea of to polish and that comes down to the idea of to perfect and that's what we want to emphasize that this very Hebrew word that is used here to translate into English creative has the idea in it of fashioning or bringing to a point of perfection so when you make a, a big ring around that word it definitely has the idea that the finished product that God made was in a perfect state. It was a perfectly finished product. So all we can say, in the beginning, and we're going to talk more about that in a minute too, God brought to a perfect state is the idea. When we talk about create, it could be created punk, or it could be created well, good. But this Hebrew word has the idea of bringing to a state of perfection. Now I want you to turn to the 11th chapter of Hebrews. There's a very, very, very important verse there as well. I'm going to bring your attention about three or four key verses which help explain what happened here at the creation of the world. And one of them is in Hebrews 11 and 3. Write that down. Hebrews 11 and 3. Now this gives us further light on exactly what happened. Suzanne, will you read that? Now the, the the Greek word here for framed is this word. I'll, will you write this down? K A T A R T I D Z O. And this word in Hebrew means to make perfect. And some of the translators give that idea. Through faith we understand that the worlds, now that word worlds also is cosmos. And from that we get the word cosmetic. What is a cosmetic? <coughs> yeah. Uh, a cover, right? Just a cover. Yeah. What? What is a cosmetic? What's it used for? The cover. Yeah. The cover. Well, what is this? Has anybody here ever heard of cosmetics? Yeah. <laughs> All right. What? What do people use cosmetics for? A door. Yeah. What? Cover imperfections. Yeah, that's right. They're cover imperfections. If the lips ain't red, they make them redder with cosmetics. If there's blemishes on the skin, they have cover marks to cover them up. If they want a mole and they have no moles, they get brown and they make a mole and so on. So a cosmetic is something to make something which is imperfect perfect. Now, mind you, it's very difficult in some cases. They're not going to see But it, uh, everybody should be given full marks for trying. Now, that's where, but what I'm getting at is that this word cosmos, which is world here, also has the idea of order. A cosmos is an orderly, or more or less leading on to a perfect situation. It's the opposite. We'll put that down. A cosmos is the opposite from chaos. Just the opposite. One is cosmos, which is orderly, and the other is chaos, which is disorderly. So, in this uh, letter of Hebrews, it says, through faith we understand that the worlds, the orderly creation of God, eh? because that's what cosmos talks about, order, were framed, and that word is 
Katartizo, which means perfected or made perfect, by the Word of God. Now, there's a lot in this that we haven't got time for this morning, but I do want to uh, mention that it was made by the Word of God. Now, what's the next phrase say? There. Not only was it made by the Word of God, but something else it said. What is it? John? So that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. All right. Now, Einstein, I believe, has contributed, uh, through his theory, a much greater understanding of this verse than we ever had before. His theory, or his great formula, was that M, pardon me, uh, E, equals mc squared. E is energy. Equals mass or matter multiplied by the square of the speed of light. In other words, energy and mass are interchangeable. Energy is not seen. Mass, or this stuff here, or wood, or whatever you want, is seen. And the, and the advent of the hydrogen bomb, the atomic bomb, proved that energy and matter can be converted one into the other. And this is what this says. Here we come along now, and science tells us what this writer knew uh, 1900 years ago. The things which are seen were made of things which are which do not appear. Energy does not appear, but stuff does. And that's how they were made. Which is an aside, like we haven't got time to go into that now. Alright. Let's summarize here what this verse says. It says, we understand that the world, the orderly situation that happened were framed or put together in a perfect manner by the Word of God. He spoke and it was done. Energy activated and matter was formed out of nothing, which is what this formula of Einstein has to say as well. All right. Now there's another key verse. And it is Isaiah... Get these down. Confusion. 
waste, ruin, vacancy. Can you read that? Just showing up. All right. Chaos. Any, any of those words that have the idea of, of in general, we can class, classify this whole business as disorder. <coughs> right? Disorder. <coughs> now, what did he say? Let's think about this now. He says here that he... That's God. Created it. That's the heavens and the earth. How? What are we told here? With purpose. Is that what he says? Everybody agree on that? That he that he created created it with purpose. I'm just talking about this phrase now that we're dealing with here. The rest of the verse we want to think about maybe in another session. But right now, we're talking about this simple phrase. He created it not in vain. All right. Uh, now, what does that tell us? What was it like? What do we know about it from that verse? Definite purpose in creating it wasn't just done for a whim. He had a definite, decided purpose here in the beginning. Well, that's right. But aside from the, I'm thinking more not so much of, uh, as his purpose versus non-purpose, but I'm thinking more about the condition in which the Bible says it happened. Very good. First time. Yeah. We're getting close. Now, now let's look at this thing, y'all. It says here he created it not in vain. In vain is a Hebrew word which says tohu. And that means confusion, waste, ruin, vacancy, chaos, or disorder. So what do we know about the creation? Or the purpose. Yeah. It had order out of the evolutionists. The evolutionists say that it was found in a state of disorder. Right. It went from disorder to order. All right. It says in that verse that we have order in the beginning. All right. Right. It created a non-confusion. Yeah. The, the point of it is, is this. We have the word not here. So this verse tells us this much, eh? That whatever happened, it was created not in disorder. Now, if a thing is not in disorder, what is it in? Order. Order. So, all right. If a thing is not in disorder, it is in order. Right? Everybody got that? That's a double negative. Now this is a very tricky mathematical concept that only superior minds like yours can grasp. But, please grasp it. This verse says that it was created not in disorder. And if a thing is not in disorder, it must be in order or orderly, right? Does this sound reasoning or phony? It sounds right. Okay. So this verse says, does it not, in effect, that God created the worlds in an orderly fashion. Is that what Hebrews 11 and 3 said? He, we understand through faith that the worlds were framed by the word of God. Worlds was cosmos, which indicates order. Katartizo is a is a verb which means make perfect or orderly. So are we is every is are the scriptures in agreement so far that the thing was created in an orderly manner or perfect manner? Everybody got this point? Alright. Now we go back to the first chapter of Genesis again. We have a look at that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now we ask this question, what was the condition of that creation? 
because the verb create there has that connotation, but these other two important verses as well. What do we know about it? Uh, in what condition was the creation set up? Right. It was set up in order. So, putting this, these three things together, we can positively say that the verse could very well read like this. And write this down. In the beginning. God created in perfect order the heavens and the earth. How do we know that? We know it because in Hebrews 11 and 3, it says that. It says exactly the same thing in Isaiah 45 and 18. It distinctly says in both. In, 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 in Hebrews, it says that the worlds were framed, which means set up in perfect order by the Word of God. And in Isaiah, in, in 45, it says it wasn't created in chaos or disorder, so therefore it must have been created in order. Now we come, fine, that's what happened in the beginning. Okay. Now let's find out what happened in verse 2. The word there in our authorized version starts off with and. This preposition or conjunction in Hebrew is a word that conveys a multitude of different meanings. And while it's translated here by and, it could just as easily, and there's no reason for not translating it, by but. And that changes the meaning a bit. Because if you use the word but, it's a little different. And Hebrew scholars believe that it should be translated by the word but. Now let's read. But the earth was without form and void. All right? Without form. Without form. You know what the word, the Hebrew word is there? Our old friend, Tov. How did, how was that translated in Isaiah? 45 and 18? Confusion, waste, room, disorder. Yeah, but right in the authorized version, how's it translated? Yeah, in vain. Here it says, without form. And void. Without form and void. And that Hebrew word is bohu. B-O-H-U. Are any of you here uh, proficient in the French language? Any of you ever studied French off past where I did, which was from hunger. Nobody, well, if you do, did. There is a French word, tohu bohu, which is borrowed directly from the Hebrew. And it means, as a loose translation, topsy-turvy. Put that down. Tohu bohu means topsy-turvy, or um, upside down, or in a state of confusion. So the word bohu here, not only is translated void, but it means emptiness, um, indistinguishable ruin. Yeah, and also it. This word bohu is used three times in the Bible only, and in the other two places, it is used in conjunction with the judgment of God. In other words, the emptiness and the ruination that took place was because of divine judgment. And it would appear that perhaps uh, 
this was the same case here. Now there's a, another interesting thing about this verse, and that has to do, I better go up a little higher, that has to do with the copula verb here to be. As you know, the verb to be is a key verb in any language. Here, the verb to be is translated by was. The earth was without form and void. But Hebrew scholars have gone into this thing very carefully, and many of them believe, and I believe, that it really should be translated by the blue perfect, the same form. It's only because the word is out of position that they know there's some other meaning meant. We won't go into that now. But it really should be translated, had become. Had become. Now let's look at this. Verse 2. In the beginning, God created this thing in an orderly, perfect, functioning manner. But, for some reason or other, apparently because of divine judgment, the earth had become tohu bohu, topsy turvy, upside down, in a state of ruination and devastation. And darkness, presumably also because of judgment, was upon the face of the deep. Now, I have tried to set this whole business down in a pictorial manner. Uh, Rock, will you help me get these out? Some considerable period of time. We don't know how long. 
but certainly for some time. Then came a change. But, it says, the earth had become in a topsy-turvy condition. A wilderness, a waste, a confusion, a chaos. And we've indicated that by this little hexagon here. So we have here the end of original, orderly creation at that point. For some reason or other, because of the judgments of God, uh, this orderly and nice condition of things came to a terminal point. And then the earth became disorderly, upside down, topsy-turvy, confusion. And that lasted for some considerable period. We don't know how long. And so we have here the period prior to the creation of Adam when the earth was a desolation, this period. First it was orderly, then it went along for some time, then disorder set in, confusion and chaos, and that lasted for some considerable time. Now we come to a point of time when God decides to refashion this planet. Out of the disorder and the mess that the earth found itself in, as described here in verse 2, he decides to refashion the thing. Refashion it. And that word is another um, Hebrew word which is used with a specific connotation. Then the Bible says that at this point of time, in six literal days, God refashioned the earth and brought it back again to a state of order. And so right at this point of time, and we put it on one point to show that it was virtually instantaneous, which is six literal days, and we've taken this line down here and this line down here to show that the first day was light, the second day the firmament was fashioned, the third day grass and herbs were fashioned, the fourth day the sun, moon, and stars were allowed to come through, the fifth day animals, birds, and fish were set forth and created, refashioned, and in the sixth day Adam, and in the seventh day he rested. And then time went on, and this dispensation, this Adamic dispensation, is being worked out over a period of 6,000 years. I didn't have quite enough room on this chart to show the whole thing because the page doesn't go that far. So let's now read this translation. Originally, God brought into being and set in perfect order the heavens and the earth. But the earth be had become a desolation. That's Bobo. And a pall of darkness hung over this scene of disaster. And then the Spirit of God moved over the face of the waters. And we've also set down here Isaiah 45 and 18, For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, he created it not in vain. He, he did not create it in a disorderly manner. Therefore, he must have created it in an orderly manner. He formed it to be inhabited. And there's a new word, formed, which indicates this point of time. Different from what happened over here at the original creation. Now in chapter 2 of Genesis, in verse 7, we have a Hebrew word translated here by the word formed. <laughs> The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. Now that word formed or fashioned is the Hebrew word yatar, Y-A-T-Z-A-R. Formed. Or fashioned, if you like. And that is the same word that is used over in the first chapter of Genesis when he talks about forming or fashioning the herbs and the animals and the other things. It's a different word from what is used for creating. He created the heavens and the earth in an orderly manner. Then came a period of disorder. 
Then he fashions man, the animals, and the other things, as is stated here in the second chapter of Genesis. Now, in verse 20 of the first chapter, for instance, we have, this is the work of the fifth day. Now, we won't read all the days. This is only a sample. Um, Laura, will you read chapter 1 from verse 20 to 23 inclusive? Who's got it? Who's got that? Ron? 20 through 23? Yeah. And God said, Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life, and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. And God created great whales and every living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind. And every wing of fowl after his kind. God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the sea, and let the fowl multiply in the earth. And the evening and the morning was the fifth day. Now remember what I told you at the start, that no other book is like this, that when people read it, they say, We will now prove that it doesn't mean what it says. I don't know of any other book like this. People read all kinds of books, believe you me, today. But the only book that I know of where they say we will now show that what we are about to read means something entirely different from what the author said is the Bible. Now the Bible says here that the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Now I would think a Hebrew guy uh, in the time of Moses reading that would say, yeah, well that means that the evening and the morning were the fifth day. That is what people now say. They say, oh no, that is what means it all. Why that means that you are Science 